I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and they stormed the skiff. I can't believe they stormed the skiff. Scads of Republicans, scores of Republicans. What is the collective? Oh yeah, a limbaugh of Republicans entered the sensitive, compartmented information facility. 24 hours ago, if I asked you what was storming the skiff, would you answer A, a skateboard move, B, a naval maneuver, C, a mass internet troll thing, or D, a fairly blatant violation of national security protocol. D is the correct answer. The Republican Party is inventing new ways to embarrass themselves. They're out to violate all the norms, to find norms that we didn't even think were norms, and to violate them. Now, the details of this skiff violation, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's this. Uh, let's go back to yesterday. Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, testified to the House Intelligence Committee inside the skiff, and he confirmed that President Trump withheld aid to Ukraine as a condition of investigating Hunter Biden, essentially. It basically couldn't be clearer that this was the quid pro quo and that it was a quid pro mal quo, which is to say the quid that the president sought, or actually he sought the quo, he was giving the quid but it was all illegitimate. So there's another witness scheduled to testify today, and it's sensitive, so they're going to do it inside the sensitive compartmented information facility. You know, so secrets don't get out. Good thing, right? Republicans usually like that sort of thing. All patriotic Americans should, not liking the secrets to get out. But no, this time the Republicans pounced. Not all the Republicans. I mean, a bunch of the Republicans were actually inside the skiff because the Intelligence Committee is doing the investigation, and all the Republicans who are actually on the Intelligence Committee are, of course, invited to sit in on the session and question the witness. But other members of the House who are not on the Intelligence Committee, you know, the unintelligent delegation, they flooded the secured room where the hearing took place. They brought their phones with them against the law. They pushed past Capitol security. They chanted. They wore the Republican version of crocheted pussy hats, which is these paper mache penis horns. Okay, I made that part up. Here now, let's go to Representative Bradley Byrne of Alabama. He was tweeting his moment of activism right after storming the skiff. I've just come from inside that star chamber room where they've been trying to conduct an impeachment, impeachment hearing in secret. The kind of secrets where all members of the Intel Committee, including Republicans, can join in, participate, and be briefed, that sort of star chamber. Another congressman actually made contact with the surface world, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the skiffs at sea. Uh, good morning. This is Congressman Alex Mooney. I'm calling you live from the skiff. It is precisely 1.22 p.m. We came in this morning right after the press conference around 10 a.m. We've been sitting here waiting for the hearings to start. The moment we walked in the room, Chairman Adam Schiff saw us, took the witness, and walked out of the room because they refused to have a hearing in a transparent way. That's right. He refused to allow a transparent hearing with potentially sensitive materials to be broadcast to just anyone. Headline, Shifty Schiff in Skiff Tiff. Schiff won't let rivals sniff skiff, causes rift. It is all just so terribly, terribly stupid. 
it's Devin Nunez level stupid, which, like Trump's smears and lies, get broadcast via social media, Fox News, Sinclair Broadcasting, back to districts back home, thus creating an alternative, entirely fictional set of issues to be supposedly upset about. Shameful. Feel free to disagree if I whiffed on my skiff riff. On the show today, the Zuck. He's back before Congress. He likes his testimony like his most dedicated Facebook users, unhinged. And he likes his luggage like his facts, unchecked. But first, is Justin Trudeau a transformative visionary or just a regular politician with a really good head of hair? The voters of Canada put him back in the prime minister's seat, but with less of an attaboy than a, what are you going to do? And because it's ratings gold, and you know that it is, we bring you once more, again today, Canada Chat, hot talk from the frozen north with Chris Berube, up next. So Justin Trudeau will still be the Prime Minister of Canada. He took his blows, he got up off the canvas, and he won by less than before in a parliamentary system that's significant, and yet still, he is the Prime Minister of Canada. Joining me now to talk about Canadian politics is something that I did with this very person for years on end. He's Chris Berube, who you might know from such podcasts as 99% Invisible, which he's now producing, uh, from the Front Burner CBC podcast, and also from the credits of The Gist, longtime Gist producer, and uh, someone who could explain Canada to Americans, Chris Berube. Hello, Chris. Hello, Mike. It is great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yes, this is excellent. So it did seem that there was the possibility of a rebuke to Mr. Trudeau. Yes. Would you say he got a mild slap on the wrists or it's politics? And if you win by even a little bit, you've still won. Well, it's a weird outcome because he actually lost the popular vote. So the conservative party in Canada won 34 percent of the the votes. And then Trudeau's liberals won about 33%. And somehow, because of the way the geography of Canada works, he won the most seats, but not a majority. So I'd say this is a pretty serious rebuke to him. I mean, it's pretty unusual to govern for one term and then lose basically the keys to Parliament Hill. But as I looked at the uh, Canadian map, or really the Canadian electoral map, it is true that not all, unlike the United States Congress, where all the districts are around 700,000 people, unless you have have a state like Montana with a million, there are wild disparities. So on Prince Edward Island, everyone who who gets sent to parliament represents like 30,000 people, but in Ontario, it's 100,000 people. So pop, I mean, there's an asterisk to that losing the popular vote statistic, I think. Well, there is, but also it's the fact that the conservatives won by like 70, 80 percent in some of the more rural districts, especially out west, like in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And then the liberals only won by like 10 or 20 percent in places like Toronto or Montreal. So, yeah, there is an asterisk to that, but it is it's a really weird outcome and it is really weird to see a right wing party not benefiting from that kind of popular vote district splits, because that's what we're used to from uh, the Republicans winning the Electoral College in the states. But that's what happened here. 
But it also seems weird to me insofar as it is a parliamentary system. There aren't two parties. So on the right, you have the conservative party. But on the left, you have a whole bunch of parties. You have the Greens. You have the Liberals. I don't know. Where would you put the Quebecois is nationalistic, but they're definitely not conservative. So tell me about the dynamic. It seems like the Liberals can kind of cannibalize their own, whereas the conservatives have this clear lane to getting every conservative vote. Right. So let's go through this. So there were six parties that people thought were going to be competitive in this election. So you have the liberals. That's Justin Trudeau. He came in talking kind of a big progressive game. I think a lot of people on the left were kind of disappointed in him because he didn't do all the things he had promised, especially around environmental stuff, around uh, indigenous rights in the country. On the right of him, you have uh, the Conservative Party, who were run by this guy named Andrew Scheer, who was really not setting the world on fire with his charisma. But uh, the thing with Andrew Scheer that I think is very telling is that he drank uh, milk out of a beer glass uh, in public last week. So he's this very kind of milk toast candidate. He didn't really catch on with people, but he was running to the right of Trudeau. There was another party on the right, actually, called the People's Party of Canada, who were run by this guy, Maxime Bernier, who's kind of a rogue conservative. He was using words like globalist in his speeches. A lot of people saw uh, comparisons to Trump. He ran all these big ads that said no mass immigration. And uh, actually, he didn't win any seats. I thought he was like the Nigel mm -hmm. Farage of Canada. That was kind of how he was positioning himself. Like he was saying like, oh, yeah, I'm just I'm just asking questions about mass immigration and things like that. And uh, I think it's interesting that Canada fully rebuked this guy. Like he lost his own seat in parliament. Like the party has no foothold whatsoever. Um, But he did take about one and a half percent of the vote. So that did bite into the conservatives a little bit, I think. And then you're right. On the left, you have the NDP, which is kind of like if Bernie Sanders were his own party. And they were run by uh, Jugmeet Singh in this election. He was the leader. And Jugmeet was running on promises like free pharmacare, like they were going to pay for everybody's pharmaceutical drugs, free dental care. Like it was this big uh, expansion of government that he was running on. And then you had the Green Party who were saying, okay, basically we have to marshal everything towards making sure that we don't go over the Paris climate targets. They're run by uh, Elizabeth May. She was the leader of that party. They did a little better. They picked up three seats and about 6% of the vote, but that's three seats in 338-seat parliament. So they didn't do very well. They didn't have a very efficient vote. And then, yeah, there's the Bloc Québécois, which was basically dead as of two elections ago. Like, they were down to about four people in the House. Everyone's like, okay, Quebec Quebecers really don't want to separate anymore. But that party over the last couple of years has come back. Some people say it's because there has been this giant split between Quebec and Western Canada. There's been, like, all these old Canadian rivalries being brought up because of oil and gas, because of lots of cultural differences across the country. But uh, the bloc ended up being the third party. And, yeah, it's hard to put them somewhere on the ideological spectrum. I think the only thing they're pretty consistent about is they say, like, yeah, we are all about Quebec first. They, The leader, Yves-Francois Blanchet, actually did a speech today where he's like, I don't really care about the government of Canada. It's not my job to make the government work. But if there's good stuff for Quebec in there, I'm going to be there fighting for that. So... What this all adds up to, I mean, it's all fascinating in its own right, but what it does add up to, uh, it seems to me, that you have a dynamic in Canada where there are the conservatives who 
aren't actually growing their numbers, but they did get a larger percentage of the overall vote, about 34.5% of the overall vote, larger than any single other party. But if you put all the other parties together, and it's not, as you just laid out, you can't say that they're all liberal parties because, as you said, you have the the Bloc Québécois pretty much uh, saying that the very leader of the NDP shouldn't be allowed to express his faith. But if you add all them together... It's much bigger than what the conservatives have. It's just that there are just so many of them. This is why, for instance, that Justin Trudeau has to form a coalition party because there's not enough. He wasn't sufficiently popular to have a uh, government formed just among his liberals. Right. So it's an interesting situation where if you look at the votes and you look at the seat count, If Justin Trudeau teamed up with the NDP, so that's Jagmeet Singh's party, they have exactly 181 seats. So I think that would be enough to pass a budget because 170 is the halfway point in parliament. So you just need 170 to get stuff passed. So they could team up and maybe pass bills. There's talk there might be a coalition government, but there doesn't actually have to be as long as he has enough votes to survive confidence votes and to get a budget passed. That's all Justin Trudeau has to do. So it's possible he could just be the government and every year just kind of hopes somebody supports him when he tries to pass a budget. A minority parliament is something we've seen before. We saw it, you know, quite a bit in the early 2000s here in Canada. And there was this very dramatic instance a couple years ago where the Liberal Party and the NDP and the Bloc And all these independents kind of had to team up just to get some legislation passed. And it was kind of messy. They didn't form a government together, but they had to work together uh, to get enough votes to get things passed. It's a thing that happens that uh, happens in parliaments all over the world. I mean, you're seeing it in the UK right now. Theresa May's party doesn't have a majority of the seats in parliament uh, when that election happened. They had to team up with a party from Ireland to get things done. And, uh, you know, it hadn't gone super well for the conservatives. Like, Theresa May's not there anymore. (laughs) Now Boris Johnson is trying to cobble together votes from all sorts of coalitions. So it means that there's a likelihood there could be another election. But the thing with Canada is people get really sick of elections really fast. Like, we had an election a couple years ago that was six weeks. It lasted for six weeks. And at the end, everybody was saying, like, oh, my God, I don't want another election. (laughs) Don't send us back to the polls. And you know, for anyone in America, that sounds like an impossibly short period of time. You're like, oh, my God, six weeks of politics and hearing people argue like that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And with and and also like how much spending spending is uh, regulated, too. Right. You're not inundated with ads like we are in, especially if you're in a swing state. Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, the, the spending is regulated, but also it's yeah, it's like five weeks of campaigning and already everybody here is like, OK, I don't want to go through this again. Make it work for at least 18 months or two years. So I suspect that's what you're going to see in Canada. But it is this like awkward position where liberals have to work with the left-wing party. If they can't make a deal with them, maybe they turn to the bloc and try to figure something out. Maybe they turn to the conservatives. Like, it's a really perilous situation. So that's why I think it is a real rebuke of Justin Trudeau. This is not what he was saying during his his victory speech where he's like, we got a mandate. We're back. We're going to govern. And it's not really that. This is like a really hard situation that he's in now. Well, it seems to me that the sheen has certainly come off Justin Trudeau And the biggest thing that we in the United States were exposed to was the black and brown face scandal because there were visuals involved. It doesn't take too much to look at a picture of him wearing brown face at a a high school function over a decade ago and saying, well, that's a bad choice. But there are a few other things. And I want to ask you, 
what do you think bothered Canadian voters the most? There was this um, kind of non-prosecution of, of, of a Montreal firm where he got into a fight with, uh, you know, members of the Justice Department and there was an ethics investigation where he was cleared, but it was, it seemed to be pretty, I don't know, it didn't seem to be uh, following the best practices of open governance. So that's one. Then you got the uh, brown face scandal is too. But then, and this didn't get as much uh, coverage in the United States, he allowed pipelines from Alberta. And from what I understand, that was very disappointing to many Canadians. So of those things, or maybe something else, what do you think hurt Justin Trudeau the most? I, I mean, I think it's a, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Actually, the blackface and brownface scandal didn't move the polls all that much. It didn't have yeah. as much of an impact as everyone thought it was going to. And it's so surprising when you think about in the States when the governor of Virginia, when those blackface photos came out, everyone was calling for his resignation. Here, that didn't really happen. Like Trudeau gave a full apology. He said, you know, he didn't know what he was doing back then. And People seem to move on and the liberals did pretty much as well as the polls suggested they would do. So it didn't make a huge dent in his popularity. But I think Trudeau did a little bit to make everybody mad. So the Liberal Party, when he came in, made this promise that they were going to fix up indigenous relations in the country. They were going to fix the environment. They were going to get our emissions down. So we met the Paris Climate Accord. But at the same time, they were like, OK, so clearly the economy is struggling in Alberta. There's all these people who are out of work. The oil and gas sector is struggling. So we're going to get that going, too. And I think four years ago, everyone's like, well, how are you going to do that? He's like, don't worry, I've got a plan. And... People were like, okay, I don't really see how this is going to work, but we'll give it a shot. And it turns out it didn't really work. I mean, he instituted a carbon tax, so that made a lot of right-wing people fairly angry. Um, but he also bought this pipeline that was not getting built uh, with government money and said, we're going to build this pipeline. And that made a lot of environmentalist voters angry. So I think he kind of tried to play both sides at all times, and it didn't really work out for him. Yeah. If you look at an electoral map of Alberta, it's uh, all conservative. It didn't win yeah. votes there either. Exactly. And what he said in Alberta was, OK, well, look, I bought this pipeline. I'm trying to get things going again. I'm, I'm going to turn the economy around in Alberta. But that wasn't good enough for people. I mean, the, even he bought the pipeline and people were like, well, you haven't built it yet. You know, let's uh, let's see you actually do something to get people back to work. And, you know, you brought in this carbon tax. So now, uh, you know, every time I go to get gas, I have to pay a little bit more. So he did a little bit to make everybody mad. And I think that's kind of what ended up being his undoing in the election. So here's my last. It's not a question. It's an observation that. Sure. We've been talking about function and dysfunction and things that Trudeau did that were disappointing or ridiculous, you know, things that he did, pictures of him that emerged. And yet, mm -hmm. when I still f compare, as I do, the Canadian election and the electoral system and the electorate, and this is big, to the United States, I'm bowled over by this headline, federal election 2019, turnout dips compared with enthusiasm that brought Trudeau to power four years ago, but I left out how much it dipped by. The full headline mm -hmm. is, voter turnout dips to 66%. Wow. Yeah, we fell to 66. That's, uh, that's a low number for us. But I mean, I think something that is very similar between the Canada and U.S. races is what I heard all the time coming into this election was, this is the most important election in your lifetime. And a lot of that was coming from people worried about climate change, people who were worried Andrew Scheer was going to get in. And I feel like you also hear that every time there's a U.S. election. So in that way, I think our countries are, are very similar, in fact. 
Chris Berube works for the CBC, sometimes hosts the Front Burner podcast, which I quite enjoy, and is a producer for that great podcast, 99% Invisible. Great to talk. Great to catch up with you again, Chris. Great to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for having me back. And now the spiel. The chairman of Facebook, arguably the most influential man in America, whose business was founded as a, as a way to rate the hotness of Harvard undergraduates, went before Congress today seeking to point out that even though the firm Comparatech found that politicians and social causes spent $616 million between March 2018 and March 2019 on Facebook, that Facebook is so big, that much money doesn't mean a thing to him. Look, from a business perspective, uh, the very small percent of our business that is made up of political ads does not come anywhere close to justifying the controversy that this incurs for our company. How about this? The expression on Representative Maxine Waters' face seemed to imply. How about this? How about we, the representatives of the people who are actually appalled by the pervasive and pernicious permissiveness of your democracy warping ad policy. How about we decide if the controversy is justified and your metric of it not amounting to a significant enough percentage of overall revenue? How about we set that aside? Okay. The sixth wealthiest man in the world continued. So this really is not about money. Uh, This is uh, on, on principle. I believe in giving people a voice. I believe that ads can be an important part of voice. You gotta have voice. One way to have voice is thumb. With thumb, you can hit like, and everyone knows your voice. And we're all connected. Fantastic. Sir, connect a lot. Continued. Um, I I think especially in the political process for challenger candidates uh, and for local candidates or advocacy groups whose message might not otherwise be covered by the media, um, having ads can be an important way to uh, inject your message into the political Let me interrupt you for a minute. Let me interrupt. Though we will hear from you in a second, Representative Waters, Zuckerberg there is using the same argument about giving voice to the voiceless and going around gatekeepers that every small advocacy group makes. And I guess it sounds good, but you know, a small heretofore voiceless advocacy group can be on the side of good or they can be neo-Nazis. They can be conspiracy theorists. They can be Russian sock puppets. They can be science deniers. Speaking of injecting your message, they probably are anti-vaxxers. When the only determinant of who gets to do this great thing of going around the gatekeeper and having their voice heard, when that is entirely determined by who gives Facebook money to run an ad, you're much more likely to give voice to the kind of voiceless who are voiceless because the gatekeepers have deemed them not credible. Right? You're not likely to favor the voiceless who are voiceless because they're so darn righteous that it's scary to the gatekeepers. And by the way, Facebook is a gatekeeper, even though they claim not to be. They're a gatekeeper for every other kind of ad except political ads, as Representative Waters now points out. Let me interrupt you for a minute. Are you telling me, I think as you said to me before, you plan on doing no fact checking on political ads? Uh, Chairwoman, our our policy is that we do not fact-check politicians' speech, and the reason for that is that we believe that in a democracy, it is important that people can see for themselves what politicians are saying. Yes. 
by having an active and free press as watchdogs. How can people possibly see for themselves that a statement is a lie without professionals who are trained and of goodwill doing work to ascertain that it's a lie? Because you say, quote, in a democracy, it being a democracy, it means people have a magical ability to see lies and truth for themselves. Oh, because they live in a democracy, they have a gene for truth? Or is that an app? If in a democracy, people can see for themselves, does that mean that if we were living in an autocracy or a monarchy, that's the only case that fact-checking would be justified? If so, Facebook doesn't do that either. In a democracy, as a phrase, is nonsense. It's just some serotonin-inducing blather. Chairwoman, in a world where otters are adorable, we feel that people have a magical ability to know when claims about U.S.-Saudi trade deals are accurate and when they're exaggerated. They just know. So Zuckerberg made the case there, no, 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 it's not about money. He's making, I guess, a moral or ethical case. And his case is, if you follow his logic... Not fact-checking. It's just the right thing to do when it comes to political ads because it's not about the money. can't be about that. He happens to see not fact-checking political ads as a better exercise of civic participation than telling Facebook's billions of users that a politician is attempting to win an election by lying. That would be saying, hey, that's a lie. We've determined that's a lie. That would be a worse option for democracy than actually fact-checking the politicians. That's Zuckerberg's argument, not about the money, just about doing the right thing. Let's return to the exchange. It was but one exchange in a day with a lot of them. It wasn't even the most damning exchange. I just saw it and couldn't believe any of the two minutes I witnessed. Here is Zuckerberg talking about the kind of fact-checking that Facebook does engage in. We have feedback that, that people in our community don't want to see viral hoaxes or, or, or kind of so widespread. let me be clear. Widespread misinformation, viral hoaxes. Oh, yeah. Political ads don't have any of that. Of so let me be clear. You do no fact checking on any ads. Is that correct? Uh, Chairwoman, what we do is we work with uh, a set of independent fact checkers who. Somebody fact checks on ads. You have you contract with someone to do that. Is that right? Uh, Chairwoman, yes. And tell me, who is it that they fact-checked on? Uh, Chairwoman, what we do is when content is getting a lot of distribution and is flagged uh, by members of our community or by our technical systems, it can go into a queue to be reviewed by a set of independent fact-checkers. So they can fact-check political ads. They just don't. That said, if you want to pressure Facebook to be truthful and accurate, I would suggest that you are truthful and accurate when making your case. A few days ago as a stunt, Elizabeth Warren took out a Facebook ad that read, Breaking news, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook just endorsed Donald Trump for re-election. You're probably shocked and you might be thinking, how could this possibly be true? Well, it's not. Sorry. But what Zuckerberg has done is given Donald Trump free reign to lie on his platform and then to pay Facebook gobs of money to push out their lies to American voters. No. Okay. So that that's not the part that I'm criticizing Warren for. Uh, that was just Warren making a point, and And it's a well-made point up until then. But I'll read you the rest of the ad. The next two lines are, if Trump tries to lie in a TV ad, most networks will refuse to air it, but Facebook just cashes Trump's checks. 
Actually, no. By law, a broadcast network cannot refuse to air a political ad. Literally, the law. I'll read it. Section 315 of the Federal Communications Act. Quote, if any licensee shall permit a person who is a legally qualified candidate for any public office to use a broadcast station, he, he, shall afford equal opportunities to all other candidates for that office in the use of such broadcasting station, provided that such licensee shall have no power of censorship over the material broadcast under the provision of this section. So the senator not only got it wrong, but is engaged in a public pressure campaign to change the actions of a private company while ignoring the actions as described in the federal law, which she actually does have power over. It's like how all the senators who are running for president say, as president, I would ban the filibuster. You can't do that as president. You can do that as senator, only you can't do it as senator because the other senators don't want to do it. Now, there is a reason why Facebook not checking ads is more a danger than TV networks not checking ads. It's because when Facebook runs an ad, that ad could be targeted to a select few. The candidate that that ad smears on Facebook might not even know they're being smeared. It could disappear and be lost to the ether, even if it does sway votes. A TV ad's a lot more likely to be subject to scrutiny, and the lies it perpetuates can redound quite poorly on the liar. Mark Zuckerberg is prone to analogize that his company's like a TV station when it suits him, or the telephone company when it suits him, or an NGO when it suits him. Facebook is, in fact, its own thing, and it should be scrutinized and regulated as such. I think Facebook should fact-check, and I think Facebook should gatekeep, because fact-checking and gatekeeping works. It doesn't perfectly work, but it works. To wit, I found out about Elizabeth Warren's inaccuracy by looking it up on PolitiFact, where they rated it mostly false. PolitiFact also works with Facebook to look into viral hoaxes, but not on political ads. But I think they've showed they're up to the task if Facebook just lets them. I say Zuckerberg should unleash the fact checkers on the political ads. I mean, how could he object? After all, political ads, they're such a teeny tiny part of Facebook's massive revenue to tell Mark Zuckerberg to recalculate his civic commitments should not even justify a controversy. And that's it for today's show. At the end of a long day, just producer Daniel Schrader is going to enjoy some delicious skiff. Of course, slow-cooked Italian farro. Christina DeJosa, just producer, finds main skiff activist Matt Gates to be skiff. Significantly creepy, in fact. The gist. This is Representative Alex Mooney. I'm calling from 45 minutes into the film Maleficent 2. I am being actively shushed by dozens of preteen girls because they don't want you to know the truth. Maleficent is the real whistleblower. The 12-year-olds are almost upon me. But the people must know. Tell the world my story. Oomperu depperu dooperu. And thanks for listening. <laughs>